This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So, Baruch Hashem, we just passed our first test. We're able to keep it together and hold ourselves together. Um, I wanted to say that um, for those of you who are wanting to join our WhatsApp group, you can join it at tinyurl.com forward slash Epstein. I was also saying before the technology kicked in, I don't need this, right? This is a prop tonight. Awesome. Well, yeah. Okay, I'm not going to use it then as a prop. Um, that many years ago, it came out with a book called The Complete Guidebook to Family Purity. And Baruch Hashem, it's been selling in stores. That is number one. But we are coming out very, very shortly. And this is the first manuscript of The Complete Guidebook to Dating for Marriage. So if you are an eligible single and you would like to get married and you are unclear, the 8,000 questions that you will need to ask somebody in order to find your Bashar and what to ask on a date and how to behave, as well as a lot more information that is coming out very, very soon. And Baruch Hashem, we just got the first draft of the manuscript which we are going to butcher tonight and then we're going to go to final print very very soon so that is where we're holding in that script now um that the concept tonight that we're talking about based on Rechaim Kanievsky's Sefer called Arfas Yesher is the idea of is the idea of Kas and Kapeda Kas and Kapeda which means a person being angry and a person being mocked on things now why is he talking about these two things specifically and I think it's very simple the reason is because these things are intrinsically connected, meaning to say that a person is generally triggered by something that struck their hakbada, meaning they got upset about something, and therefore they got angry. There's usually something, there's a trigger, and that trigger is what causes the person generally to get angry. And therefore, Chaim Kanievsky puts these two things together, kas and kpeda, kas and kpeda, okay? So that's what we're talking about tonight. Now, we know that the Rambam, very famously, Rambam says that a person on all midos, when it comes to most midos, a person should find the middle path. A person should live in the middle path of almost everything. You shouldn't be too much to this way or too much to that way, except for one thing, and that is when it comes to anger. The Roman says that a person should stay away from that. And there's many, many gemaras over here, and I want to sort of get to the practical side in a second, but Rukhain Kanievsky always starts with a buildup of Mamre Chazah. And in these Mamre Chazal, he lays out all the negative things that happens to a person when they get angry. So a person who gets angry, we, we know that a person who gets angry, they don't have much of a life. They lose all their relationships. Their own house is destroyed. People don't want to stay married to them. Their children want to alienate themselves from them. They lo- it's brought down that they lose Nevoa if they had Nevoa. If they have Chachma, they lose Chachma. A person who loses himself in anger really loses himself. He loses himself. Now, there's a Zayar that he brings down, Rechaim Kanievsky brings down, and the Zayar says that a person has to remember that your body is your body. And inside your body, you have a nuclear energy called your neshama. And your neshama, right, tahirihi, that's what we say every morning. Neshama ashenersatavi tahirihi, it is tahar, it's pure. And your neshama sort of sees the world through the lens, obviously through your eyes, through your perception. And that neshama is a pure neshama. However, when a person allows themselves to get triggered by certain events, you might think like, okay, big deal, didn't do anything to me. But desire brings down that a person can exchange their neshama. Your neshama can change itself out. Where a person's neshama leaves their body, it gets almost like tainted with an impurity, and that impurity becomes the guiding light for who you are. And that guiding light, desire says, if a person sees somebody in such a situation, you should know that you're literally looking at a person that is almost filled up with Avay Dazar. Like you filled yourself up with a terrible darkness and that darkness, people shouldn't talk to you. People shouldn't look at you. People shouldn't congregate around you. They shouldn't have anything really to do with you. 
Why not? Because you've exchanged your neshama, which is pure, with something that is not pure. Now, if you've ever gotten angry, if, if you've ever gotten angry, you know that you're almost like a different person. You feel like you're shaking, like you're out of control. You're seeing the world with like a certain, like you're seeing red in front of your eyes. A person who gets angry, it's not just a physical reaction. It's a metaphysical reaction that the result calls this person a trefa. It's almost like you filled yourself up with like a certain death. And that death, even if the person is filled up with Tyra, even if the person is filled up with mitzvahs and other things, it, it taints it. It surrounds him with a certain darkness. And that darkness is something which the only way, says that Rizal, for a person to break out of is to actually break this mida of being angry. So we know how bad this is. Getting angry is a terrible thing. And not only is it a terrible thing, but it is something which a person loses out on. Now, there's a story that's brought down from the Beis Yasef, very famously in the days of the Beis Yasef and the Arizal, where they lived in Tzfas, it was known that they oftentimes tapped into the, the wellness of the Be'er Shalmiriam, which Chazal say is located either in the Kinneret or near the Kinneret or in a specific area by the Kinneret. And it was brought down this, this tradition that every Matzah Shabbos, the Be'er Shalmiriam would spread itself through different mayanot, through different springs around that area. And anybody who would go and bathe in certain mayanot, it had a specific, like a certain healing power. So it's brought down that in the city of Tzfat, there was a man who his whole body was covered in boils. And he asked his wife one month to Shabbos, you know, go out, take a jug, fill it up from one of these mayanot and bring it to the house. She went, she knew exactly where to go. She went and she took a few minutes longer than this person expected and it's brought down. And when she came home, the husband was, a, he was, he was ready. He, he, he lost it. He was already like furious. So when she came home, he started screaming at her, what'd you do? It took so long. I couldn't wait for you. This is ridiculous. And in his rage, he took this, this jug that was filled up with this water and he threw it against the wall. The jug shattered. And when it shattered, there was some speckles of water that bounced off the wall and they flew and they hit his skin. As soon as they hit his skin, like three droplets on his skin, those three areas immediately healed itself. And his wife looked at him and he looked at his wife and he realized, I would have just maybe slowed down for a second here. Could have taken this whole thing and dumped it over my head. I would have cured my whole body that was covered in boils. And we, we see this idea in many, many areas where a person's reaction I'll call it, to specific events is almost more important than the event itself. I have on my phone a list every time I meet people who I consider successful in the business world, and I say that um, you know, loosely, people who I find they have something, a bit of chachma that maybe I don't have. So it's not just necessarily in the business world, it may be in public speaking or relationships. What I do is I go over to the people and I say to them, listen, you obviously do something right you've probably studied your craft to a certain degree. Can you tell me, give me one piece of advice? And I have this little list on my phone. At this point, I probably have like 75 to 100 like pieces of advice that I've received from people that are very successful. And each one is like, is like a world. Like you have to really like read it and understand it and understand that there's like almost like a mahal hachayim. Like this is a way that this person became a billionaire. So I was sitting with a person once and I said to him, give me your your best piece of advice like what what made you so successful and he told me that he's presented almost every day 
with different deals. People come over to his house or his office, they sit down with him and they show him spreadsheets and they show him buildings and they show him manufacturing. And they go through all the different types of ways that he can make money. He said, my number one rule before I talk to anybody about their business, before I talk to anybody about, I want to know that I can trust the person I'm doing business with. That sounds like very obvious. But what he does is he, he gets them in conversation about, tell me about your old business partners. Have you ever had any business failures? They'll say like, you know, he'll make them wait for like two minutes and like see the reaction or he'll see like if something goes wrong, something that people do when they're dating, like subconsciously, you're going out with a guy and all of a sudden he gets stuck in traffic and he starts losing his mind. A lot of people, because they're thinking about the fact that he's from a wealthy family or blah, 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 whatever the case may be, they sometimes overlook this inner quality. And this person told me, he said, if I see a guy who gets angry or he has a rigid personality, it's game over. I'm, I'm not even interested in seeing his worksheets. Because the nature of the world is that the world will throw you curveballs. And I think that most of us are pre-programmed to live not an easy life, but we look, for, we look for the comfort zone in our lives. We look for the area that we don't have to deal with adversity too much. But the reality of life is that life is filled with adversity, whether it's from our people around our, our, our lives, our children, our spouses, our parents, whether it's in the business world, whether it's in the professional world, whether it's in school, life is filled with adversity. And the key is not to run away and figure out how you protect yourself from that adversity. It's figuring out how to keep your emotions in check to the point where you're able to deal with it in a healthy way. And it's funny because, you know, in this book, not giving another plug, we already gave it, but in this book, we were talking about the idea of having emotional health. And I was reading through like the chapter and I was sitting there in my mind, I was thinking if I could sum up emotional health, like what is emotional health? I think it's the ability to regulate your emotions and to deal with adversity in a healthy manner. It sounds like very simplistic, but I think that we could all agree that the person who has a hard time when their friend is successful or when something bad happens to them or when, when anything goes on in the world, which is emotional stimuli, which we're surrounded by it all the time, that I believe is the key to success in your life, that you're able to deal with things in a healthy way. So anger takes a person out of this world. Why does it take a person out of this world? Because the decisions that they make and the things, the way that they react is usually not going to work. Now, what is the source for anger? Meaning why are most people triggered? What are most people's triggered? triggers? So it comes down to four things, okay? There's usually four reasons why a person gets angry. And the next time you get angry, which happens to everybody, the next time you get angry, ask yourself which of these four things is happening to you at this moment, okay? Number one is that you feel that you're misunderstood. I find in most relationships and most marriages, this is probably the number one reason why people get angry because they emote emotions. They trying to be understood. They're trying to explain that they feel something. Usually it's a form of neglect or abandonment or there's something off in the relationship and they're trying to verbalize it and they're not coming out clear. I had a couple recently that came to me the man was convinced that his wife was lying to him. And when we were going through the story, it was incredible how her, her perspective on a whole series of events was coming from an emotional place. And therefore, she was stating like, I don't want to call it her facts, but she was stating like what the way she perceived it. And he was sitting there talking from a very logical brain, ABC, this is what happened. And it was incredible to line up the story. I literally, I was like marking this down on my paper. 
I'm lining up the, the events that happen. I'm like, so your wife saw this and you saw this, and then you saw this, you saw this, you saw this, you saw this. And then you ask this question and it appeared that your wife lied, but she didn't lie. And the reason she didn't lie was because she went through an emotional journey for the last 10 steps that you totally didn't understand. And he went through a very logical journey that you did not understand. And it was incredible. It was like an, an amazing, it was like an eye-opening moment where she looked at him and she's like, oh, now I get it. And he looked at her and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. They were both able to fully understand that the other person's perception of the world, the way that they've gone through, through things is different. And I would argue that in most marriages, besides feeling loved and secure, probably the top, th- the third emotional need that a person has is the need to feel understood. And when people do not feel understood, they feel like an emotion is trapped. And when that emotion is trapped, they get very upset and frustrated. Number two is when a person experiences an injustice. When something happens that you just simply feel is not right, most of us, we, we go crazy. It could be somebody cutting you in line. It could be somebody stealing something. It could be Hamas kidnapping people. If something is an injustice, it infuriates people. Even I would argue, you know, if you are tuned into a lot of the news of what's going on in the world and how the world was like nice to the Jewish people for like nine seconds. And then they go, ah, and now we right? Like they turned on us like in a, in a heartbeat. That infuriates people. If you watch some of these interviews that are going on, it could be so infuriating because it's so unjust. It's so crumb. It's so crumb. It's like, what are you talking about? That, that idea of something being crumb, as they say in Yiddish, or being unjust, that is the second trigger that I think that most people will agree they have. The third thing is somebody who goes through a lot of stress. I think that we all have a certain amount of emotional batteries. Some people have a crazy amount of batteries. They have, I don't know, I'll call it like a 12,000 milliamp battery. And some people have like an iPhone one. It dies after 15 minutes. They have a very, very short capacity. Every person has their own emotional batteries that they are able to be civil, to maintain a certain amount of stress in their lives. Some people could be in very high stress situations and they're totally fine. They see, th- they see things with a certain clarity and they're able to run through their lives. Some people are just simply not equipped. Now, that in itself can cause a bout of anger. When a person's, their emotions, they drain, they're not able to handle it. That can cause somebody to have anger. But oftentimes you find that when you're in a relationship with somebody else who's having a meltdown, the reason why they're having a meltdown now and you're not is because you may have more emotional capacity than them. And part of validating the person is understanding that they are not you. They see the world through a different lens than you have. I was once sitting with a certain rub and somebody called him. It was late at night. It was probably 11 o'clock at night. And the person said, hi, do you have, you have like 10 minutes for me. And the person, this, this rub said, he said, I'll be very honest with you. I have 10 minutes for you, but I don't have any emotions left for you. So I have the time. My schedule is clear but I have no emotions for you. So if you're calling just to chit-chat, I can chit-chat. If you're calling because you need me to be emotionally invested in a 10-minute conversation, I don't have anything left in the tank for you. I'm really sorry. I was very impressed by that because he understood his own boundaries. He understood his own boundaries. I'm done. I'm depleted. There's nothing more for me to give to you right now. I'm sorry you have to call back once my batteries recharge. Okay? So number three is stress. And number four is that we have a rule and that rule was broken. We have a rule and that rule is broken. If you want to say it a little differently, it's that we have an expectation and that expectation was not met. Oh my gosh, I thought you were going to bring my cleaners. I can't believe it. Tonight I have a wedding. Oh my gosh, I thought you were going to this. I thought you were going to, it's always, I thought you were going to. We have an expectation of somebody else 
That does not happen. I can't believe you didn't call me before Shabbos. I can't believe you didn't come to visit. I can't believe you didn't find me this. That I thought you were going to, or I can't believe you didn't. That expectation is not met. That is what triggers most people's emotions in a high, in a high state. So what do we do about this? We know that anger is bad. We know that there's a trigger that's causing this to happen. What do we do about this? So there's a Gemara. And the Gemara is a very famous Gemara, so I won't go through the whole Gemara. But the Gemara says that there were two men, non-Jews, who had a bet. And they bet them, they bet each other 400 zuz, which was a tremendous amount of money, that they can get Hillel angry. And we all know this Gemara, so I'll go through it very quickly. But the Gemara says that this man came to Hillel's house, and Hillel was taking a bath on Erev Shabbos, a notoriously busy time of the week. And Hillel's in the bath, and this man starts screaming out, Hillel, Hillel! And Hillel gets dressed, and he comes out of the bath, and he says, yes, my son, how can I help you? And this man says, I have questions for you. And he proceeds to ask Hillel some of the silliest questions in the world. Why is it that people from Bavel have pointy heads? And Hillel says, wow, that's such a brilliant question. And if you, if you read the Gemara slowly as to how Hillel answers his question, the man says, I'll just read one snippet over here. He says, he says, like, what can I do for you? I have a very important question to ask you. He says, the way he talks, go ask my child, ask. Right? And he says, I have a good question. Why is it that people in Bavel have pointy heads? And he'll say, it's a great question. He says, you asked a great question. And then he answers him. He says, because the midwives don't know what they're doing. And when a baby is born, they squeeze the baby by the head. And therefore the baby comes out with a cone head. And he says, Okay, thank you so much. And he leaves. Hillel gets back in the bath. And this man comes back a few minutes later when he knows that Hillel is sitting back in the bath. And he says to Hillel, Hillel, I have another question. And he comes out. He gets stressed. He says, yes. He says, what would you like? He says, I have a question. And I want to say, I didn't see this brought down, but I want to say that even that in itself is part of this man's trying to, trying to turn the knife. It's like when somebody's taking your time and they say, you know, can, can I ask you another question? You know, just ask the question. I know why you're here. You know what I mean? But he's like, I have another question for you. Okay, so he says, okay, sure, go ahead. Go ahead and ask it. So he says, why is it that the eyes of these people, they're, they're squinty as opposed to being straight? So answers him because they live in places, right? We know the Gemara. And every time he comes back, I have a question, Rebbe. I have a question. I have a question. The end of the Gemara is a very profound statement where this man gets very frustrated that he can't get Hillel upset after the fourth or fifth time. And he turns to Hillel and he says to him, this is terrible. You should know that I just lost a bet. I thought I could get you angry. And I just lost 400 zuz. And Hillel says to him, Hillel says to him, you should be very careful with the way that you speak because you should know. Listen to these words. Hillel shetaaved al arba you should know that it is better for you to have lost 400 zuz than for Hillel to become makbid, right? The word hakbada, or to be angry. So what was Hillel saying to him? A very interesting line. He's saying to him, it would be better for you to have lost 400 zuz than for me to get angry. What's the correlation here? So the Marsha explains that Hillel was, was, you have to put the words together a little bit. What Hillel was explaining to this man was actually an eight to for the rest of his life. And what he was saying to him was, you should know that the idea of working on yourself, that you won't become Mahfid, that you will learn from me, hello, what it means not to be Mahfid, that lesson was worth 400 zuz. You should know that the Mida of, of, of not being angry is such a precious Mida that all this money that you just spent was worth it. 
It was worth it. You just learned a very powerful lesson that this is how a person is supposed to react, right? So I will say that the first idea is a hard idea, probably the hardest idea. And that is simply that a person has to work on this. There's no shortcuts to this. Hillel wasn't born this way necessarily. Hillel worked on himself. And there's many, 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 many Gemaras that talk about Hillel and Hillel and Hillel. And the Gemara also talks about why base Hillel, we follow base Hillel, because of the way that, that base Hillel had a certain, a certain hachna, a certain anivlas that they inherited from Hillel. Hillel was a perfectionist in terms of his midos. And therefore, because of that, we follow Beis Hillel over Beis Shammai. And Shammai, the Gemara talks in many places, how Shammai was much more makbid. He was much more exact. The Gemara where somebody comes to Hillel and says, be megayar me and I'll stand on one foot. Right? Shammai pushed him away. He went to Hillel and Hillel said, yeah, fine, no problem. I'll deal with you. Right? All the cases where you see that, that Hillel, Shammai pushed him away, Hillel had the, the time to slow down and to think, I'm not being so makbid. I have anivos. You're not bothering me. It's okay. And he was able to deal with the person in a much calmer thing. So the lesson of Gemara is very simple, is that this is a very valuable lesson. It's a very valuable lesson. Now, why am I saying this? Because a lot of times, I think that most people think that the way that they are, or the way that they were created, or their hakbada, or their truth, or their emotion, that becomes the reality. What do you mean? But, but if you don't validate my feeling, then, then you, you negate me. You make me feel like I don't have a right to be upset. Don't I have a right to be upset? People say it all the time. Don't I have a right to be upset? Yeah, you do have a right to be upset, except that you're hurting yourself. Except that you're now blinded to, to the truth. You're not making a smart decision right now. You have a right? Yeah, you have a right. But you should know that you're just hurting yourself. You should know you're hurting the people around you. You should know you're filling yourself up with like a certain darkness. Do I have a right? Maybe you don't have a right. Maybe you should calm down. Maybe you should work on yourself. Maybe you should like learn to not be so mocked on everything. And that I think is what Hillel was telling this man. You take it as a given. The given is that people are upset. And the given is, is that somebody who's not upset, watch me, I'll make him upset. And I was like, well, slow down, slow down. The idea here is not, is not a race to the bottom. It's not to see who could get the other person more worked up. It's really about who could work up, who could work on themselves to bring themselves up, to work on their hakbada, to work, on their cost to work on not being angry. Putting in the work is, I think, the first step. Now, for most of us humans who are not on Hillel's level, we're going to have times that we're going to fall. But the ability to hear somebody else tell you, by the way, in this case, you should know you're wrong. You're makbid, but it's the wrong hakbada. You have this hakbada that nobody could come into your room? It's wrong. You have this hakbada that nobody could touch your toys? You're wrong. You have this hakbada that, you know, whatever it is, nobody should sit in your seat. I'm sorry, you're wrong. Again, there's halachas of a father and a rebbe and whatever, but I'm talking in a regular situation. You have this akpada, you have to calm down. You have to relax. There's not a way to react. There's not a way to talk. There's not a way to deal with people. And if you can't, then you should know you're being ma'abid. You're simply losing out. You're losing out on the finer things in life. You're losing out on relationships. You're losing out on decisions. You're losing out on chachma. You're losing out on everything. So not always is your right the right thing to do. And oftentimes it's really not. And that is the idea of Hillel. Now, I think that there's three steps over here for us regular people that I just want to throw out there, which I think is really, really, really important. The first idea, when a person realizes that they're getting angry, is very simple, is that a person would be very, very wise to take time before they react. What usually happens is that there is a flare-up and your body fills up with negative, I'll call it negative enzymes, negative emotions, and then it usually takes time to subside. Some people it's faster and some people it's slower. 
But a wise person takes the time and does not take their anger and cause their anger to make them have a reaction right away. So that's the first thing. Simply take time. There's an incredible story brought down by Rabbi Yudah Chassid. Rabbi Yudah Chassid said that there was a man whose father told his child throughout his life, he said, my son, in all situations, you should try to be calm. And when this man was getting older and he died, he called his son in before he died and he said, thank you very much for always listening to my words. I'm going to give you one piece of advice that even after I die, you should listen to this piece of advice. Always wait one day when you're angry before you react. Disconnect your anger from your reaction. So this man said, okay, Tati, Daddy, Abba, I'm a cow. This man went ahead, he got married, and he had to travel away on business. The story goes that he had to leave his wife for a number of years. doesn't say exactly how many, but it's a long time. He had to go away for like 10 or 15 or 20 years. Like he was away for a very long time. And when he came back after being away for so long, so he was coming back and he didn't tell his wife that he's coming back. So he figures, I'll come to the house, surprise her. Ta-da, it's me. Remember me. It's been a while, 20 years later. And he's about to walk in the door and he hears his wife is talking to somebody. She's like, that's odd. So he peeks into the house and he sees that his wife is hugging a man and he starts panicking. And he's like, okay, that's it. 20 years, my wife, she's, I don't know how old she is, 40-something years old. There's this man in the house. And the man takes out his sword, and he's like, I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill her. I'm going to just kill everybody. He was furious. Like 20 years later, Arida Hasid says, he stopped as he's about to open the door. And he thinks to himself, my father told me, whenever I feel rage, whenever I feel anger, wait one day. Just wait one day. It's okay. I'm going to let this subside. I'm going to wait this. I'm going to wait this out. Puts away his sword and he's standing by the door and he hears his wife talking to this man. And she says to this man, she says, you know what's, ama- you know what's amazing? This is what she says to her, to this man. She says, it's amazing that your father left not even realizing that I was expecting you. And if your father was here, he probably would have spent some of his time and his resources finding a good shit-up for you. Well, what should I do? I don't have all the ability like he has. He's such a good businessman and all that. You know, he just doesn't have the ability. I don't have the ability to help you get a shit-up. But Amir Tashem, hopefully he'll come back soon. And then he'll help you get married off. And then you could go. And this boy's like, mommy, thank you. Thank you. Right? The guy opens the door. And he literally almost killed his wife and his son. It says the first idea is that when a person is angry, just don't do anything. Don't do anything. Separate your anger from your reaction. That's number one. Number two is that what I think most people tend to do is when a person gets angry, we tend to surround ourselves with people who validate our anger. And what I think in most relationships, we're most people tell you that you should speak positively. I actually believe it's wise to speak negatively. And I'll explain to you what that means. In certain times, when you're, when you're speaking negatively, you need somebody to speak positively. I'll explain to you what I mean. When a person feels misunderstood in a relationship, the way that you want a person to come back to you 
and to apologize to you is not by saying the words, I'm sorry, because I'm sorry is a very generic term, which usually means I'm sorry that we are in this situation. I don't know why we're in this situation, but I'm sorry. You will see this very clearly when you get married, okay? Men are very nice and they're nice creatures, but they're not always as in tune to the emotional needs of what's going on in a relationship. So when you're upset about something and you're getting angry, right? And you're, you're sitting there and you're going, where is this guy? I don't know. Like, what is he doing? I can't believe he invited his mother again. He didn't call me, right? You're getting furious. You're getting upset. And then he comes in the door and you lash out at him, right? What he's usually going to say to you is, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. He's sorry, but he doesn't necessarily have why he's sorry. He doesn't really have what he did wrong. Doesn't necessarily understand it. The best apology is not by saying the words, I'm sorry. It's by saying the negativity. Oh my gosh, you must feel this. Because in a relationship, what people crave is to be understood. So when he says to you, oh my gosh, you must have felt abandoned when I didn't pick up my phone. You must have felt like I made decisions on my own because I keep inviting my mother without telling you. Now I understand what I'm doing wrong. He speaks out the negative. You will be like, wow, he's, he's, he's okay. I won't, I won't check him right now. Because he's actually relating to why you're upset. When it comes to us being upset, what you really need is not somebody to say to you, you go, girl. You have a right. Yeah, absolutely. What you really need is somebody to calm you down. Where do we find this? I was thinking about this. Where do we find this? We find this by Ahasuerus, right? Ahasuerus gets upset. He asks Vashi to come. She doesn't come, right? And what does he do? He turns to his advisors, his wonderful advisors, and Haman steps forward and gives him a wonderful piece of advice, right? You should go ahead and shaft your wife. That's his advice. He surrounds himself with people who are validating the king. Oh, the king, you're angry. You have a right to be angry. This is what you should do. And the Megillah talks about It was after his anger subsided, after he reacted because he didn't disconnect his anger from his action, and he surrounded himself with people that validated his anger, he woke up and he's like, what did I just do? I just murdered my wife. What did I do? What was I thinking? Now, of course, they had all the reasons why it was okay to do it and all that. But the reality was that Ahasuerus, A, failed to separate between his anger and his reaction. And number two, his second failure was that he surrounded himself with people who riled him up. They took his anger, they validated his anger. Instead of saying, maybe calm down. Let's see what you can do about this. That was what they did. And number three, and so before I go to number three, there's a, I just want to share with you an incredible story. Yeah, I just want to share with you an incredible story. The story goes was that the Maral Diskin, who is a Rav and Brisk in the 1800s, after he passed away, his family found buried in his, in his stuff, they found a medallion from Egypt. It was almost like a medal of honor from the Egyptian government. They opened it up, it was like in a box, and it was a medal of honor. So his family didn't know the story, and they started asking around, and it turned out that there was a very, like, an incredible backstory to this story. The story goes that the Maral Diskin, Rabbi Shulalev Diskin, he had sent a letter to Cairo, to a certain Rav in Cairo, and the Rav didn't answer right away. So he sent another letter on a, as a follow-up to his first letter, and the Rav wrote back, I'm sorry I didn't answer you, but I was busy something with the king. I apologize. Um, and I'll help you deal with whatever you're dealing with. Here's the answer to your question. 
So Rabbi Shulay Diskin wrote back to him, you mentioned that you're busy with the king. Is everything okay? Like, are you guys in danger? Is anything wrong? So he wrote back to him the following dilemma. He said, here's the dilemma. The dilemma is, is that the king was walking with his wife one day and they were walking by a creek. And his wife turned to him and said, you know, I'm really thirsty. I wish I could take a drink. So the king turned to her and said, the creek is not sanitary. It's not a smart move. Like, don't drink from the creek. You could, you could get salmonella. You could get poisoning. Don't, don't do it. So the wife said, okay. They kept walking, standing by the same creek. And the wife turned and said, you know, like, oh, I'm really thirsty. I could really use a drink. So the king turned and said, I'm telling you, don't do it. You're going to get set. It's not worth it. So she said, okay. And then they went the third time. They're walking. And it's the same walk. And she turns to the king. She's like, I can't. I can't. I need a drink. The king said, I'm telling you, don't do it. You're going to get sick. So she's like, okay, sick, not sick. I'm really thirsty. I need a drink. So she bent down and she took a drink. The king came back to the palace and he was talking to his friends, his advisors. And one of the advisors said, one second, isn't there a law that in our kingdom that if somebody disregards the, the king's orders three times, they're considered a married malchus. Your wife, the queen, you told her three times not to drink from the creek. Doesn't matter what it was. It might have been a silly command, but you told her three times not to drink from the creek. You have a chiv to stand up for the covet of the malchus and to kill her. The king said, like, well, what are you talking about? No, like, she's my wife. I like her. She's a nice lady. He said, no, but that's what it says in the law books. And if you are going to break the law, then we're going to have to replace you because you're not a good king. The law says that if you go against the king three times, you get killed. So either you kill the queen or we are going to have a revolt. So the king said, hold on, let, let me think this through. So he didn't know what to do. So he called in this rub who lived in Cairo. He called in a, an, like an, an Islamic whatever, and he brought in a Christian uh, whatever, right? Three, it sounds almost like a joke, right? A rabbi, a priest, and a uh, imam walk into the palace. And the king lays out this dilemma. He says, what am I supposed to do? I can't kill my wife. That's crazy. But if I don't kill my wife, they're going to kill me and my wife. What am I supposed to do? So the king told them, you have, I don't know how many days, let's say 90 days to come up with a solution to save my wife's life and to save my, you know, my malchus. So this man wrote back to Rebishulay Diskin, this is what I was dealing with. And I, I don't know what to do. So it, like, help me, you know. So Rebishulay Diskin wrote back to Tshuva and it was accepted by the king. I'll tell you what the chuva was in a second. And in recognition for the fact that this came from Rabbi Shulay Diskin, who he never knew, never heard of, he sent him this little medal of honor. Now, what that chuva was, nobody knew. So they, they, nobody knew what it was. So when Rav Chaim Kanievsky was saying over the story, someone asked him, he said, what was the chuva? What was his, what was his etza? So Rav Chaim said, ah, oh, it's Pashat. He said, it's a Gemara. The Gemara says, and he went through a whole Gemara, Menachem's Gemara talks about how a stream, the Shaila is, is the stream one body of water or is each time a different body of water? And since a stream moves, each time is a different body of water. So Chaim said, she, this is what Rabbi Shuvalev Diskin told the king. Your wife didn't go against you three times. She went against you three one time. 
One time it was on this body of water, then you kept walking, then there was a second body of water, and then you kept walking, and then there was a third body of water. So she was always only married by Malchus one time. And the king said, oh, that's brilliant, right? The fact that Jewish scholars hold that body of water is three different times, that's good enough for me. He told his advisors, I'm not listening to you. And they said, okay, we're Makabal also. If that's how Jews Paskin, we'll go with that sock. And they figured out a hatter to save the queen's life and to save the thing. And that was how actually this can, uh, uh, you know, save the king of, 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 uh, of Egypt. Now, why, why am I saying this to you? Because this is a level-headed guy. There's a person who recognized, let's slow down. Let's come up with an etza. Let's figure out where we go from here. And what I think happens to most people is that the real, real reason, the underlying reason why we get angry and why we get upset is because we are trying to push our will through, trying to push it through the system somehow. We're trying to calm our family down, so we're getting them riled up. We're trying to, you know, tell somebody like you broke this this value of mine, or you're you're I'm under too much stress, and we just push forth our will as if that's going to get us to where we want to get to. I, I, a lot of times, when I'm sitting with couples. I tell the wife or the husband, "You could calm down now." Why can you calm down? Because whatever you were trying to express all this time out of frustration is now being expressed out of love. You've learned how to like reword the words that you're saying. So now you can, you can put away the anger. The anger is almost like this bulldozer that's pushing through whatever's going on. If, you, if you're able to communicate your will in a calm manner, if you're able to keep yourself grounded, then usually you're able to get across your way a lot better. And I just want to conclude with an incredible story, which really blew my mind. Story goes... That in 2003, there was a girl who was dominating at the Kaisal. And this girl was dominating at the Kaisal. She finished dominating. She went to catch a bus. And the line for the bus was, was crazy long. Crazy long. So this girl was waiting, waiting. She was standing there patiently. And there was, there was a long line. And the bus came. Everybody packed on and filled it up. And she just couldn't get up. Came the next bus. And she went to the back door. In Israel, that's how it works, right? You go to the back door and everybody just squishes on. And everyone squished. And she was like walking nicely. And then she realized that she was able to get on. Like there was one more spot for her. So she started putting her foot up. And some girl came running from the Kaisal Plaza and jumped ahead of her and literally jumped in her spot on the bus. So she turned to the girl. She's like, are you serious right now? Like you just stole my spot. The girl said, no, I was waiting a very, very long time. So she's like, really? It's interesting because I was also, and I, I didn't see you here. So the girl was like, okay, come try to squeeze on with me. So she tried it and she kept falling off. Like it wasn't working. So as they were like trying to navigate this, the door started to close. The doors closed and this girl turned to her friend who was not so much her friend and basically said, you know, I hope you don't make it home alive. Okay. The door closed. The bus took off. Now this girl was standing there. She was in a very bad mood. So she said, you know what? I'm just taking a cab home. Forget it. It's not worth it. She gets into a cab and the cab starts going. As the cab is getting close to Arze Habira by Shmuel Anavi, there's a massive explosion. And bus number two from the Kaisal blew up. Everything shut down. There's a massive terror attack. No, there's a plaque over there. It's a very well-known terror attack. This girl was sitting in the cab. Everything shut down. So the cab driver said, everything, I can't drive anymore. They shut down like the whole city. She got out of the, out of the taxi and she just walked home. And as she's walking, her mind is flying. 
So she gets home, she turns on the radio, her family's like, where were you? We're so nervous. And she just went into her room and she turns on the radio and starts listening. And they start saying, I think it was like 20 people who, who got killed, many people amputated. It was like a terrible, terrible attack. It was a packed bus. So this girl sitting there and she's like, oh my gosh, I don't even know this girl's name. Even when they start releasing the names of the victims, I don't even know this girl's name. So she's sitting there and she's crying and she doesn't know the girl's name. And she says, I'll buy the newspaper tomorrow and we'll see. They'll put out a list of people. So she's sitting there and she's, she's looking in the paper the next day. And she doesn't see this girl. And she's like, maybe she's in the hospital. I have to call the hospitals. And for the next couple of days, this girl was, she was just a mess. She was a mess. And she's sitting there thinking like, I cursed this girl out. I was like, I hope we don't make it home. And she was so upset at herself. Like, how did I allow myself to get to, to such a low place? Like I said something, but like my words have value. And she underwent within like 72 hours, this like roller coaster of emotions, of guilt, the feeling like maybe I killed her, maybe with my words that carry so much weight. No, it doesn't. It can't be. And she was going through this whole roller coaster of emotions. One night she turns to herself, she's like, I have to get out of here. Her family was getting very nervous for, for her like emotional well-being. She said, I need to go back to the Kaisal. I just need to go down. She goes back to the Kaisal. She dives and she cries her eyes out. And she's like, okay, I feel like this is only Neshamayim. Whatever happened, happened. I realize I learned my lesson. I hope this girl's okay. I don't know where she is. It could be she's laid up in a hospital somewhere. I have absolutely no idea. And she says, I feel good. I feel cleansed. I'm ready to go home. She goes back to wait for a bus. And as she's standing there, somebody taps her on the shoulder and she turns around and it's this girl. And she's like, what are you doing here? And this girl says, what am I doing here? What are you doing here? She says, what are you talking about? You were, you were on the bus. Weren't you on the bus? Bus number two? So the girl says, let's sit down and let's just figure out what happened this night. So they sit down and the first girl, the girl who was angry, she says, tell me what happened. So she says, what happened was that I came running. I saw this whole massive line. I, you know, I, I'm sorry, the girl who came, who came second, she says, I came running. I saw this whole massive line. I feel bad. I cut you. I jumped on the bus and I, I didn't mean to cut you. I didn't mean to hurt you, but like, I just didn't really want to wait. She says, and then when we got to the first stop, I realized that I left my Tehillim back at the Kaiso. So I jumped off the bus. Now, because it was a packed night, Eged sent like three or four buses to pick people up. So that bus that I was on was not the bus that got bombed. It was the bus behind me. So she says, so I was thinking in my mind, oh my gosh, I just stole this girl's spot and I made her wait for the next bus. So I'm sitting here for the last 72 hours crying my eyes out that I killed you. Because I stole your spot, I made you get on the next bus and the next bus blew up. She says, you don't understand. I've been a mess. She says, tonight I had this feeling. I have to just go to the Kaisa and just pour my heart out. She says, I walk away from the Kaisa and I'm thinking to myself, it's Omen Hashemayim. What was Bashar does Bashar. And then I'm standing here and I see you standing here. Okay. It's like crazy Hashkacha Prata story. Now, obviously it was tragic for the people who were killed and were injured. But the part that struck me, and this is the part that struck me, is that in reality, most of the time, if really, if not most, it's 100% of the time, when we get angry, it, it's no different. It's really no different than all the people who after the fact realize, what am I doing? What am I doing? Why am I screaming? Why am I yelling? Why am I losing myself? 
Why am I so rigid? Why do I have all these rules? Why am I allowing the stress to pile on? Why am I allowing myself to like be a little misunderstood and then flaring up and I'm totally misunderstood and my emotions are just a volcano? Why am I allowing that to happen? If you break down the times that you get angry, you'll find that it's just simply not worth it. And the big picture of life, everything comes to a standstill. And again, we see this with Eric Yisrael, how everybody was so makhbed, so makhbed, so makhbed. All of a sudden, there's a, like a serious terror attack, uh, right? Everybody's like singing Kumbaya, taking in each other's families. Everybody loves each other, right? Hasid and Svardim, everybody, like, we're all like, we're best friends. You're from a kibbutz, no problem. Come be Makabal Shabbos, there's no problem. All of a sudden, everything goes out the window. We love each other, right? Am Yisrael, hi, and it's all beautiful. Because that's the real Jew. The real Jew is a family. The real, the real person that you're, that you're upset at, you're not really upset at them. It's not who you really are. You're upset because you're short-sighted in the moments you allow the emotion to build and to flare, and then you make a reaction. But if you stop for a minute and you say, is this really as important as I think this is? Is this really something that's worth losing my mind? Is this really something that's worth filling myself up with such a negativity of jeopardizing my family? of just losing my own nechbadas, my own self-dignity, my self-respect for who I carry myself to be. If, if you think about it in a neshama perspective, in a global way of looking at the world, you'll realize simply it's just not worth it. Because these two girls, who for a minute she hated her, because you stole my spot. For three days, she was losing her mind over the well-being of this girl. And the second she saw her, she was her best friend. Because when, when life gets real, when you peel back those layers, those layers of shallowness, the things that separate us, you realize that that's all they are. They're just very superficial things. And it could be from money. It could be from COVID. It could be from misunderstanding. And if a person wants to live a gahibana life, a life where they're more uplifted, where they're more positive, and I would say where there's much more yishav hadas, where you're able to live life with a certain serenity, peacefulness, it's something that has to be worked on. And like Hillel told this man who came to his house, he said, there's no cunts trying to convince somebody else to become angry. It's very easy to do that. The chiddush is to turn to somebody who is angry and know how to calm them down and say to them, it's not worth it. Don't make this into a big deal. Don't make this into a fight. It doesn't mean you have to be taken advantage of. It doesn't mean you have to allow people to roll over you. It just simply means that you, you understand and the big picture, certain things are worth it and certain things are not worth it. And getting angry in most cases, if not all cases, simply not worth it. That's the idea of anger. person wants to maximize their life, just internalize that message. It's just simply not worth it. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.